Well, it is good to be here this morning. Um, it was awesome last week to be able to come and, uh, and just sit in the pew. Thank you, Dave, for bringing the word. That was a real blessing. And, uh, but always excited to be back and, and opening God's word together with you. Um, welcome. We have the, the Apostles Motorcycle Club with us this morning. So if there's a couple more leather vests than you're used to in church, um, love it. Glad to have you guys. Um, today we, uh, we're bringing to a close the second section uh, of the book of Exodus. Um, took us from the, the Red Sea to Mount Sinai. And uh, next week we're going to start a new series, um, chapters 19 and 20, um, called Approaching the Unapproachable as God brings his law and the Ten Commandments and, and just seeing the awe and wonder of, of God as he uh, encircles Mount Sinai with, with cloud and fire. But this week uh, is kind of the Lord's last move in preparing them for that moment, getting them ready to receive his law. It's been an amazing journey through this book so far. I have, I have loved it. I hope you have had some residual benefit, but the study for me has been great. Um, I told you uh, about five months ago as we opened to Exodus chapter 1 um, that we we're going to be about a year in Exodus, and I don't know if anyone of you actually thought it, but um, experience tells me that there's some people hear that and go, why on earth would you do that? What a terrible idea. Uh, don't, don't go down that road. You're going to get bogged out a whole year in one book? Aren't you going to get bored? Isn't that going to get stale? And uh, you're not alone. Um, I don't know if you, I'm sure you do, get the, that creepy specific Facebook advertising that's just pinpointed on you. Um, you know what I get? I get church growth gurus. I get these videos from guys that are old enough just to have a little bit of gray hair and look like they have some wisdom, but still young enough they can dress super, super trendy and cool. And, uh, and they, they have these little videos, right? I, I, let me tell you the story of how I built my church from, from four people meeting in the basement of a Taco Bell to, to this 20,000-person mega church and, and using these four simple tricks that I can teach you and guaranteed you'll have a mega church in three weeks. And, and uh, I mean, you got to know what they're selling. This is great, right? Um, you know what never makes the list? Long series through Old Testament books. It's never on the list. It doesn't, it doesn't make it. But here's the thing. Uh, our goal is not just to gather people, right? That's, that's actually kind of easy. Uh, we, we had a saying in youth ministry, um, you want to have a big youth group? Free beer. You'll have a big youth group. Everyone will come, right? If that's your goal, just to gather people. But our goal is to make disciples. See, lost people saved. Saved people matured. Mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. How do we do that? That's a different job. Free beer doesn't accomplish that. Neither do funny stories and, and flashy presentations and good coffee and welcoming smiles and polished programs. Charisma and cultural relevance don't, don't bring that about. That's the job that the Lord does. And he does it by his spirit through his word. John 17, Jesus praying for the church says, sanctify them. By the truth, your word is truth. It's God's word that does that work. That's, that's our church growth strategy right here. So when we gather, um, we want to read the word. We want to sing the word. We want to pray the word. Um, we want to preach the word. So that's why week after week, we're going to be working through uh, Exodus. We'll take a couple little interludes here and there. Um, I think uh, Josh and I were just kicking this around. I think we're going to spend some time in Philippians uh, later in the summer, so you can look forward to that. Um, but we're looking at the long road, slow and steady. God's working by his grace and his spirit through his word uh, as he promised to do. So take out your Bible and open it up to Exodus chapter 18. Um, if you don't have a Bible on you, um, these lovely gentlemen would love to put one in your hand. Just uh, slip your hand up. And uh, we want you to have God's word open on your lap in front of you um, because my confession every week is I have nothing for you. I'm sorry. Um, if you're coming for some great wisdom of man, uh, I don't have it. Um, this is all I have is God's word. And so I want you to be able to look down and see this is, this is what scripture says. Um, this isn't what John says. Um, and, uh, and that we can come together and learn uh, from God through his word. So... Let's set the context a little bit. 
be reminded of what the Lord has, has taught Israel so far. He rescued them out of Egypt, those first chapters so full as God is revealing himself as the God who saves. And he's, he's kind of painting this picture of this is how I will save my people ultimately from, from sin and death. And then having brought them out of Egypt, brought them uh, very intentionally to some specific trials to, to teach them. Again, he's, he's preparing them for Sinai. He's saying the, the law is coming, but I want you to understand it before you get it. Because um, as humans, we don't do well with law. We twist it. We, we try to use it to earn our own godliness. And, and we get confused about what the law is about. And so the first thing he does is, is he brought them to a place called Mara end of chapter 15. And, and in Mara, the water was bitter. And they're learning. The, the wilderness is not going to provide for you. This world is not your home. You're not going to find your joy and satisfaction here. Um, and the Lord transforms the water. And he does it very intentionally, making this display as, the Lord, or as Moses obeyed the Lord and threw the log into the water. He's saying, if you obey me, I will make your life sweet. That's what my law does. It's good. It brings joy and, and life and flourishing for us. So we come to seeing God's word and God's law. We have to understand that. It's good. It's for our benefit and our joy. Secondly, he brought them to the wilderness of sin. Chapter 16. The name is coincidental. Um, it's just the wilderness is called. And they disobey him there again. They fail to trust him. They even accuse God of, of evil. And he graciously provided for them in spite of their rebellion. He gives them bread from heaven, pointing forward to Jesus, telling them, hey, your acceptance before me, my provision to you, my grace towards you, it's not based on your performance. It's not based on your, on your law keeping. That's not the point. And, and there he taught them the principle of the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is all about resting in the Lord who makes you holy. It's stop all of your striving and your work, trying to impress God and and trust him. It's the God, it's God who sanctifies. Thirdly, he brought them to a place called Rephidim, chapter 17. And, and this is where he shows how it is that he can pour out his blessing onto rebels. How does a righteous judge bless criminals? And we see it amazingly pictured as the, the rod of the Lord, the staff. That, that Moses used throughout Egypt as this symbol of God's judgment and wrath comes crashing down, not on the rebellious complaining people, but on the rock. And water comes forth. And it's this amazing picture of, of God striking Jesus with his wrath so that we can have life. He takes the punishment that we deserve. Fourthly, David uh, brought us last week through the end of chapter 17, this battle against the Amalekites and God protecting them, going to battle for them. And there's this dynamic happening there between faith and personal responsibility. They had to roll up their sleeves and get their hands dirty. They had to fight against their enemy. Uh, and yet they only overcome as God overcame for them as Moses held up his hands in, in dependence upon the Lord. So these are some key principles of how the law works, how we, how we rightly understand the law and interact with it. And now they find themselves at the foot of Mount Sinai. We're, we're basically there. And the Lord has one last lesson for them. And in some ways, I think it's the most practical yet. It's kind of the most nitty-gritty, nuts and bolts, everyday application. Um, and it's this, the Lord is the giver of life through relationships, through, through this this life as we interact with one another in, in different ways. And, and we see that in, in kind of various relationships through this passage. One of the ways the law of God works for our good, for our, our thriving, is in and through our relationships with other people. So first, let's look at uh, verses 1 to 12. We see God is the giver of life through us to the world. Through us to the world. Let me, uh, let me read this passage for us, starting in... Exodus 18, chapter, or verse 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for, the Israelite, and for Israel, his people, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, and after he had sent her home, along with her two sons, the name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eleazar, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. 
Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you and with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. And then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake and all the hardships that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all that God had done, for, for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out from the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. This is God at work through Moses to the world. Jethro's a Midianite. He's actually a priest in Midian. Midianites are not Israelites. He's a Gentile. He's an outsider. He's not part of this covenant family. That's hugely significant. The Lord is making a statement. I'm the giver of life, not just to you, but, but to the world. And it's interesting if you want to parallel Mo, or Jethro and Melchizedek. Right before God gave the covenant to Abraham, um, Melchizedek comes on the scene, this priest who's a, who's a Gentile. And, and here again, right before God gives the law at Sinai, um, Jethro, a, a priest who's a, who's a Gentile, comes in. The Lord's making this statement. It was never about just Israel. We get that wrong when we read the Old Testament. God has chosen Israel as his people, but they were chosen as a missionary people. They were chosen to be a, a display of God's blessing out to the world, to call the world, come and see, come and join in the blessings of Yahweh. They were terrible at it, but that's what they were meant to be. Um, maybe that's encouraging for us. Um, we're not the first ones who aren't very good at this missionary endeavor. But start with Abraham, right? God made this covenant with Abraham saying that he would make from Abraham a great nation, that his, his descendants would be like the, the stars in the sky, like the sand on the seashore. Uh, and he says in, in Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you and, and I will dishonor those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Of course, we see that coming to its climax in Christ as this barrier between Jew and Gentile is destroyed and the, and the gospel goes forward in, in amazing new ways. But, but that was the principle right from the beginning. That those who would come and bless Israel and understand what God was doing there would be blessed through that covenant. So God is setting out now to set his people apart even more to give them the law that's going to show them, here's how you live as my covenant people. And he's reminding them, this isn't about you. This is supposed to go through you to the world. It's huge. Just take a moment and look at how this plays out between Moses and Jethro. We're not told what happened, um, but it seems that when things started to get ugly in Egypt and, and really uncomfortable, um, Moses very lovingly said to his wife, um, why don't you take the boys and go live with your dad for a little while? This isn't going to be pretty. Um, and so they've kind of been just hanging out with, with dad and, and, and grandpa in, in Midian, and now things have settled down, and, and they're out of Egypt, and and. Jethro's bringing them back. And look at, the, look at the evangelism of Moses. I think this is so helpful. Um, first, he just lives openly about his faith. It's, just, it's right there for everyone to see. Look at verses 3 and 4. He's, he's got these two sons, uh, Gershom, and it, Gershom literally means stranger there. And then Eleazar, which just literally means God helps. So every time Jethro, um, as a Gentile, is talking to or about his grandsons, he's playing out this gospel story. He's telling the story about how Moses, or first how Moses was a, a stranger in Egypt and God rescued him, and, and then how he paralleled that and did it for all of Israel. Moses' faith is, is right out there for the world to see. He doesn't hide it. Um, he's open about it. Do we live openly about our faith? 
Do we, do we have it just kind of written on the shirt sleeve? People ask you, hey, how was your weekend? Do you, do you tell them, hey, it was great. Went to church on Sunday. I did sing this one song that I just really gets my heart going every time. And, and uh, we're looking at Exodus, and, and it's just neat to see God's plan of salvation playing out through these Old Testament stories. And, and uh, we're just honest about those things. When a coworker is sick or fearful, are, are, we, are we open enough to say, can I pray for you? I know a God who is over these things. Can I ask him to be at work here? God does something cool in your life and brings some, some unique blessing or answer to prayer. Do you, do you share it that way? Do you take the opportunity to say, look what God did? You say, well, they don't believe in God. No, but you do, right? Like, this is what God has done. Let's just talk about it. Live openly about our faith. We just need to be comfortable with that. Moses doesn't leave it there, though. Um, kind of just hoping that, that Jethro would figure it out, that, that Jethro would just kind of learn about Yahweh haphazardly through these stories. Uh, I, I think that's often where we're tempted to leave it. Right? They know I'm a Christian. If they want to know more, they can come ask. Um, I'm here for them. But Moses isn't content with that. Um, he lives openly, but then he also speaks intentionally. Verse 7, they, they greet each other, they catch up on life, they see, you know, how you doing, what's going on, how's the Midianite hockey team doing this year, um, and, and then they go into the tent. Moses brings him in, let's, let's go somewhere we can talk, Jethro. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done. Jethro, you need to know who this God is. You got to know more. And notice, uh, he doesn't skip over the hard stuff. Says he told them all the hardship that had come to them along the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And he speaks very carefully, consistently about the Lord, what the Lord has done. Um, I think often today we're guilty of, uh, of believing that we're sharing the gospel when actually we spend more time talking about ourselves than about God, Right? My life was like this and I was lonely and I was hurting and I was whatever and then I prayed and I trusted God and, and I, 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 I and now my life is much better and look at me. Um, those aren't bad things. Those can be kind of helpful stories along the way but that's not what they need to know. They need to know the gospel. They need to know what God has done. They need to understand, yo, when you talk about me, I'm gonna talk about my sin, and my failure, my weakness and hopelessness and God is holy and he's going to punish sin. He's righteous and, and he sent Jesus to pay the penalty for my sin so that I, who deserve death and hell, could be set free, could be brought to be with him. And he is gracious and generous to those who come into him in, in repentance and faith. So Moses says, look at what God has done. Look at who this God is and how he saved his people. We get so nervous about evangelism, thinking we need to have like that perfect rehearsed message or we have to have it all figured out and, 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 and we need to make sure we, you know, standing on a street corner or we do a, an evangelism thing. If I don't draw the right picture on the right napkin, it's not going to work. Moses is just sharing his story. He's just living life openly and then taking those opportunities to just speak intentionally. Let me tell you who this God is. Um, and if you know enough to be saved, you, you know enough to tell someone else how to find this God, right? If you understand yourself as a, as a sinner who needs grace and how Jesus died for your sin, then, then just pass that along. And if the Lord is gracious, because it's the Lord who does it, right? That's not our job. Our job isn't to make people believe. Our job is to share with them what God has done. And if God is gracious, you might see a reaction like we see in Jethro. It's amazing. You imagine Moses takes Jethro into the tent. Let me, let me tell you more about these. You know, you've seen glimpses of this. Let me play this out for you. Let me tell you about this God. And, and Jethro hears it and it says, Jethro rejoiced. Clearly not only believed that, that these things were true, but he celebrated it. He's excited about it. And he made a statement of his, of his own personal faith. Verse 11, now I know, now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Verse 12, he worships God. He brings a sacrifice and a burnt offering and, 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 he, and he sits down at this fellowship meal with, with Moses and Aaron and all the elders of Israel. That's significant. That, that's a, a statement. He's saying, okay, I'm in. I'm part of you now. He understands that following this God means that now he's part of this people of God. 
And they rejoice with him. They, they accept him. They eat with him. God is saying, I've rescued you. I'm revealing myself to you. I've, I've given myself to blessing you so that you can be a blessing, so that you can pass this on, right? Not so that you can be this stagnant pool, but that you can be a conduit, that you can be a spring of life to the, to the world around you. 1 Peter 2.9, speaking to us now, which is shocking because we're not the chosen people, right? Maybe there's a Jew here somewhere, but most of us are Gentiles. We're the not chosen people, but in Christ we're welcomed in. And Peter says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that, so that, that's significant, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's our job, church. We're saved and brought together so that we can make this great proclamation. Are we doing that? Think about your relationships with, with lost people, your neighbors, your, your coworkers. Are you engaging them in, in this in a personal, person, purposefully proclaiming the excellencies of God? Living openly, just, just talking about what you believe and talking about your faith. Are you, are you sharing intentionally? You invite them into the tent. Can, can we grab a coffee sometime? I want to talk to you about this. I want to tell you more about what this God has done for me. That's what we were saved to do. So God is the, the giver of life through us to the world. But then as we progress through here, we see God is also the giver of life to us in the church. There's another set of relationships, right? This grace of God is, is flowing through us into the world, but it's also flowing to us as we rub shoulders with one another, as, as the church, as the body of believers, as we grow together. So let me read verses 13 to 19, and, I, and I'll show you what I'm looking at here. The next day, Moses sat down to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening, when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, and he said, What is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make known to them the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. For the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice and I will give you advice and God will be with you. So Jethro's joined this community of faith. I'm part of this family here. The next day, Moses, still excited, I'm sure, that his, his father-in-law is now this worshiper of Yahweh, goes back to business. He's, he sits down. That was the normal position of a, of a judge sitting in front of two litigants who would stand and make their case. And he's listening to case after case after case. He killed my goat. She stole my Egyptian necklace. He crashed his filthy donkey into my camel. Moses, what do we do? How do we resolve this? Non-stop, morning till evening. Um, moms, maybe you feel this way, right? <laughs> Finally, God's grace comes to Moses through his father-in-law Jethro with these loving, kind words. Moses, what you're doing is not good. You're going to wear yourself out. You're going to wear the people out. Moses, this is a bad idea. Imagine what's going on in Moses' heart just for a minute. These are the words every man dreams of hearing from his father-in-law, right? I, I, I got to think Moses bristled just a little bit. He felt that twinge in his heart. Besides, really, Jethro? I mean, you just became a follower of Yahweh yesterday. Um, we've been doing this for a while. Maybe just watch and learn for a little bit. Besides, I know you've been a, a priest in Midian, but, but I'm the one that God personally called to lead his people, to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Pharaoh and to bring them through the Red Sea. I've got this, Jethro. I think I know what I'm doing. There are a lot of reasons that Moses could have brought up to push back against his father-in-law. If we're honest, our pride always brings up things 
There's always good reasons that we don't want to listen to advice. We don't want to hear correction. I just, I know something that no one else knows. I get this and they don't. I'm right and everyone else is wrong, right? Look how well Jethro does this. This is a role model for father-in-laws everywhere and, and really for all of us. He shows Moses the problem clearly. He lays it out for him gently. And then he leaves it with him. God be with you. God will direct you in this. Hear what I have to say and, and I'm going to just trust the Lord to work in your heart in this. And to his great credit, verse 24 down a little bit, Moses, it tells us that Moses listened to his father-in-law. He did it. He obeyed. Um, he took the advice. That's not easy. I don't know the last time someone told you where you were wrong. Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess you didn't like that very much. I sure don't. We think we're right. That's, that's why we do the things we do. If we didn't think it was right, we, we wouldn't have been doing it in the first place. But listen, we need this. This is God's grace to us. This is one of the ways that the the wisdom of God and the good commandments of God work their way into our lives as we do this with one another. I was talking with uh, a couple just the other day. Um, They're married now. Um, She was interested in him, and she went to her pastor and said, "Will will you meet with him and tell me what you think? Who does that? That's not how love works. This is love and no one can say anything else. This is love and it's us against the world and mind your own business and you stay. No, how foolish is that, right? Proverbs 12, 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. The wise man listens to advice. But I'm right. Yeah, that's exactly what the fool says. Proverbs 19:20. Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom for the future. So that person that is absolutely positive that they're right, that they've got it figured out without a shadow of a doubt, they're they're the one most likely to be the biggest fool. That's scary. That ought to leave us questioning ourselves. When's the last time someone told you you were wrong and you agreed with them? No one ever tells me I'm wrong. Oh, that's not good. Maybe they did and you just didn't hear it. Uh, Maybe they did it and did it again and did it again and did it again and finally gave up because you've made it clear you're not interested. Uh, Maybe your demeanor just says from a long ways off, I'm not interested. That's normal for us. That's That's our status quo. We don't want advice. We don't want correction, but but we need it. When's the last time you invited someone to speak into your life? Hey, do you see anything in my life that that is not honoring to God? That's terrifying, but what do we have to lose? Ephesians 4.15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So how do we grow in Christ-likeness? How does the church become more like Jesus? Speaking the truth in love to one another. Try Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's a great place to start. With scripture dwelling in you richly, coming with God's word, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. One another. We're supposed to be doing this through the church. As we live together, as we rub shoulders with one another, somehow we've, we've come to see the church first off um, as like one pastor who, who does the teaching and admonishing and everyone else listens. Secondly, as kind of something one step removed from our lives, right? Just say nice things. Keep it in generalities, please. The last thing I want to do is go home from church and feel like convicted as if I have to now go and do something or change something. The reality is the church is supposed to be all of us, one another, encouraging each other, even admonishing one another in love, intimately involved in one another's lives, living life together in ways that are transparent, that we can see each other. Do you have people in your life who have that kind of relationship and and permission to speak? You're going to burn yourself out there. Don't, Don't keep going that way. Who can say, hey, I love you, brother, but 
Did you see the way that, that you spoke to your daughter just there? Don't, don't do that. Watch out for that. Did you see the way that you brushed your wife off? I don't, you maybe need to go and apologize to her. Hey, where have you been the last few Sundays? We miss you. Don't, don't neglect meeting together. This matters. We need that. Hebrews 10, 24, 25, let us consider how to stir one another up toward love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Who's spurring you on? Who has that place in your life? And do you have the wisdom and humility to hear it, to let God's grace come through them and, and admit, maybe I am wrong. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm a sinner. Is that possible? Newsflash. We should know this. We should expect this of ourselves. We shouldn't, we shouldn't trust our hearts. We need those relationships. That's why we have the church um, around here. This is why we make such a big deal of small groups. That's what it's all about. Sitting down in the middle of the week, revisiting last Sunday's sermon and saying, okay, where did it pinch? Where did that hit home for you? What do you need to do different in life in view of God's word? And then how can we, how can we hold you to that? That's, that's huge. We need that. If, if you don't have that in your life, your walk with the Lord is stunted and malnourished. So the Lord gives, us, gives, gives life through us to the world, but, but he also gives life to us in the church. And then a little more specifically, to us through godly leadership. Well, John, I thought you said it was kind of all of us, one another. Yeah, it is. It is, but it's also about godly leadership uh, equipping and guiding and overseeing that. Look at Jethro's advice to Moses, um, kind of the, the second half of verse 19 there um, and, and down to verse 26. So it says, You shall represent the people before God, and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make known to them the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people all the time. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves, so it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You'll be able to endure, and all this people also will go their, to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law, and he did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. So Moses has this unique position, right? Like nobody else in the Old Testament. He speaks to God as, as to a friend. He's this mediator between God and man. And so verses 19 and 20, Jethro says, hey, you're not giving that up. That's unique. That's your position that God has called you to. But verse 21, also, here's what you need to do. You need to appoint able men from among the people. You need help in this. Now, I get it, how we do church leadership um, also not on the list of quick church growth uh, items. Um, it's not a sexy topic. It's not exciting. Um, but I can't help but read this passage and see how God is laying out principles for how to lead his people and principles that I think are just seamlessly fleshed out into the New Testament. Um, I think this is amazing. If you grew up in a church like mine, um, you might be tempted to think, okay, I see Moses, he's the senior pastor, right? And then there are the elders underneath him. But, but I think we need to think a little more carefully about that. Who is Moses, really? What is his role? He's the shepherd of God's people. He's the one who led them out of captivity to sin and, and across the sea of death. He's the mediator between God and man. Moses isn't kind of depicting senior pastors. Moses, as he has from the very beginning, is a picture of what Christ will be, 
what Jesus will be when he comes. And actually, 1 Peter 5 um, has this beautiful um, example of that. Verse 1, um, so Peter's writing to um, a number of churches spread across Asia Minor. And, and this is Peter. So and the Catholic Church says he's the Pope. Like he is the top of the top dogs. And Peter says, as a fellow elder, I'm just one of you guys. I'm an elder along with you. I'm a leader in the church of the same standard as, as you are. And then verse 4, looking forward to the return of Jesus, uh, he calls Jesus the chief shepherd. So in one sense, we're right. Our instincts are there. Um, Moses does represent the senior pastor. Um, they're like senior pastor and chief shepherd. Those are, those are parallel terms. Pastor actually just literally means shepherd in Latin. I don't know if you know that. Um, it's one of those funny quirks of how we use language, um, sometimes unhelpful. Jesus is the pastor of the church. He is the head of the church. He is the authority in the church, not any man, right? It's his church. But then under Jesus, in every church, there's this delegated authority. And, and I would say not to one person, but to a group. This is how the church ought to operate. So I'm, I'm not the chief shepherd at, at Redemption Olds. Not at all. Jesus is. He's our authority. He's our leader. He's the one we're following. I'm simply one of the elders alongside Arnold and Corey and Grant. And, and I think that's exactly what it's meant to be. Um, and I'm the elder who happens to spend my time preaching and teaching. And, and, and again, I think uh, 1 Timothy 5.17 let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So they had multiple elders leading the church, and one or a few of them were particularly gifted and spent their time preaching and teaching and were to be compensated for it. This is the New Testament church, and this is the way they all seem to operate. One great example, Acts 14.23, talking about Paul traveling through Iconium, Lystra, Derby, he's all over the, the countryside. And, and it kind of wraps it up saying, when they had appointed elders, plural, for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord to whom they had believed. So they had multiple elders under Jesus in, in every church. So here's a big can of worms. Just for fun, let's kick the bee's nest. Um, Moses went out looking for able men. Why not men and women? Yeah. Really? He's going to go there? I, I don't think I can avoid it. New Testament, Jesus comes on the scene and he appoints all male apostles. 12 to 0 ratio. Paul establishing the church. First Timothy 2 is this, and chapter 3 is this great um, passage on church leadership. Paul, Paul's written this book as a, as a here's how to do church. And he says in 2 verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And, and those words, teaching authority, that's specific to eldership. He's, he's, he's making that reference. Um, rather, she is to remain quiet. Um, quiet doesn't mean silent. It means peaceable. She's not to be clamoring for leadership. In her culture, these are fighting words. Like, this is not okay. Um, we're cutting these verses out of the Bible. We don't want to talk about that. But it's not our culture I'm out to please. And, and I think from the very first week of creation, God created men and women, and we're told explicitly, created both in the image of God with this inherent value. There's, there's no difference in, in equality, but he gave us unique roles. Different gifting, different role to play in that. And, and to men has been given the role, listen carefully, of loving gentle, self-sacrificing servant leadership. A kind of leadership that anyone would say, sign me up to follow that leader. And so everywhere the Bible speaks about church leadership, it's explicitly male and, and without exception. Um, now it's not all men. Most men are submitting to the few that are elders, right? Um, but it's but it's called to be men. And, and I just don't think that Jesus and the Bible, you know, were wrong or confused by their culture. Um, this is God's word. He could have changed that. 
But he didn't. He gave us this. And so we're going to follow it. Um, and leadership was very restricted in some sense. Uh, it was very intentional. If you look at verse 21, as Moses is, is uh, choosing these men, who's he to choose? It's not just anybody. Men who fear God. Men who are trustworthy. Men who hate a bribe. Other translations put it, who hate dishonest gain. They're, they're not out to use their leadership for their own benefit. Again, this comes back to this self-sacrificing servant leadership. And I, and I can't help but think as Paul is writing the book of Timothy later, he's saying, here's what elders in the church need to be. I, I think he's looking back to this passage. I, ne- I never saw it before, but um, look at this verse that he gives in, in 1 Timothy 3 and, and, and just see the parallels here. He says, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, not be a recent convert, and be well thought of by outsiders. What's he doing? I think he's, I think he's just expanding, giving a deeper explanation of, of these things that, that Moses was looking for. Men who fear God, who are trustworthy, who hate selfish gain. This is so important. The leaders in the church, spiritual overseers of the church, they must be men of character. We get so caught up with competence, right? Man, we see that successful businessman and we think he ought to be a leader in the church. Then the church would thrive just like his business thrives, right? This would be great, But God clearly prioritizes character over competence. I would far rather see, I think God would far rather see four godly, Christ-like, simple men, garbage collectors and who knows, day laborers than, than 40 Fortune 500 CEOs who aren't holy. It's about godliness. It's about character. I think God is far more likely to use some humble, uneducated, simple man uh, who loves him and loves his word than the, than the triple PhD scholar um, who's prideful and arrogant. It's about character first. So disheartening for me, probably one of the hardest days for me early in my ministry, the first time as a, as a young youth pastor to coming to a, a committee um, that was gathered to appoint elders. Nobody prayed looking for the Lord's guidance in this. No one even gave a thought to the fact that 1 Timothy 3 might apply here. In fact, I was rebuked afterwards and told it most certainly does not apply. That's far too high a standard. You can't expect that out of people. We sat around the, phone, the table with cell phones in hand, calling whoever came to mind, um, seeing if maybe they would take the position that nobody wanted, like telemarketers that everybody dreaded the call from. I just went home and wept. Really, Lord, is this how leaders are chosen in the church? Is this, is this how this is supposed to work? This can't be. And, and, I, and I, I grieve to think of it. And, and, and some of the people who ended up in, in leadership, I'll put it this way, gave very little evidence of having been transformed by the gospel of grace. How does this happen? This, this is not the way the church is meant to be. I was so thrilled when I first came to Redemption Calgary. I've been in ministry for seven years, working on a master's degree in divinity, and it would take them two years of vetting me and getting to know me, training me, testing my character before they would consider me for eldership in the church. I loved that. Don't take this lightly. It's a big deal to be an overseer in the church, to be an under-shepherd of the flock of God should never take that lightly. And yet I want you to notice, particularly young men, I want you to notice this. Where does Moses get his leaders from? He doesn't doesn't go to the online job shop. From among you. Choose from among you. They're people from the congregation. Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 3.1, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, He desires a noble task. It would be a noble thing. It would be a right and godly thing for you to pursue the idea of being an elder in the church one day if you pursue it rightly, if 
you understand what that means. To look at 1 Timothy 3, to look at Titus 1 and ask, how does my life match up? Do I, do I live with that kind of character? What are the changes I need to be making now that will bear this fruit down the road so that one day I might, I might reach that level of maturity that I can be a blessing to the people of God as an elder in the church? We're, we're less than a year in as elders here at Redemption. Um, we had the elders in Calgary kind of overseeing us, helping me as I appointed elders here, as we together appointed elders here. Um, but at less than a year in, we're already starting to ask, who are the leaders coming up under us? Who are the next godly men who are going to take the reins here? And how do we be preparing them and discipling them toward that? Give that some thought. That ought to be uh, a, a motivating thing. And if you look at those qualifications from from 1 Timothy, I think far be it from being unattainable. I think they're just a, a description of what a, a healthy Christian life looks like. But strive after that. But what's the point here? Why the long excursus on church leadership? What's, why is this here? What's this supposed to do for us? Well, I think the, the point here um, is tragically often missed in our culture today. I won't delay this too long. I was talking to somebody about our church just a couple weeks ago, and you may have noticed you've been around for a while. We don't vote. Sorry, we don't think popular vote is the best way to discern um, wise and godly decisions for the church. We want your input. We want your wisdom. We want to make careful decisions that are weighed, and, and we don't understand our congregation, but, but we believe that elders are to lead the church. And the retort was, then what is the point of even being a member? Well, I don't get a say. What, what's membership about then? The answer is because membership is submitting to godly leadership and understanding that godly leadership is a blessing to you. It's a gift. It's a great thing. That's why this is here. Notice back in, in verse 18, um, Moses' solo leadership was not only bad for him, it was bad for the people. It was wearing them out as well. And here in, in verse 23, Jethro tells Moses, if you do this, God will lead you and you'll be able to endure. And this, this is a sweet, sweet sentence. The people will also go to their place in peace. It'll be a blessing to them. It will give them Peace, the word there is shalom. It's this idea of, of richness and fullness of thriving and joy and security and life and rest. Proverbs eleven fourteen, where there's no guidance, a people falls. But an abundance of counselors, there is safety. This relationship to godly leadership is to be a blessing to us. That's partly why I think we have a plurality of elders because I need it. And so I have other men who can come alongside me as pastor, as elder, and, and challenge one another. We need that in our lives. It's a blessing. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Yes, elders tremble at that passage. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Think about that. Read between the lines just a, just a little bit. If you would make their leadership a joy, if you would be a joy to lead, humbly submitting to them, that will be to your advantage. That will be for your good, for your thriving. Expect God's grace to come to you through godly leadership. It's so one of the reasons that being part of a church just isn't optional. Why, you know, kind of informal, hey, we get together for dinner with other believers sometimes is not a church. Why church membership matters. Because membership is first about linking arms together as believers here, as we receive grace from one another, saying, hey, I'm going to spur you on and I'm inviting you to spur me on and we're on this battle together. We're, we're going the same direction. And then saying to the elders, I'm part of this flock and I'm, I'm going to submit to your leadership. And I'm going to expect to see God's grace in my life as you shepherd me. 
Even if that means correction that that I don't like at first, I'm going to have to learn to get over that. We need that. So you see how this web of relationships is working out. God is the the giver of life to us or through us to the world, to us in the the church and and through godly leadership. We need to expect that. We need to live that out. But there's one more verse tagged on the end here um, that brings us full circle, I think. Verse 27. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. There's more going on there than meets the eye. The word depart uh, is the Hebrew word shalah. It means to send. He, he, it's kind of awkward. He let him be sent. Jethro appeared on the scene as this curious outsider. He came in... Um, knowing a little bit about who God was, came to this understanding of of truly who God is as this great rescuer, to acknowledge that he was God over all, to worship him as such. And now Moses is sending him out, back to your country. Once he had seen and heard this great salvation, once he had been the the recipient of this life and this transformation by by grace, he, he went out again back to his family, back to his friends, back to a, a culture and a people who desperately needed him. And he doesn't go back as a, as a traveler returning home, but now as a citizen of another kingdom, as a soldier on a mission. And unless we gloss over this, how do you think that's going to go over? Jethro, my crops aren't growing very well. You're the priest can you do a sacrifice to that rain god like you did last year? Uh, well, see, here's the thing. I know I've been your priest for like 80 plus years, but I've changed religions. I don't do that anymore. Let me tell you about the one God who's God over all. Let me tell you about his great salvation. Hey, Jet, buddy, uh, the season's wine is done. It's all fermented, ready to go. We're going to have a party. We're going to get smashed. It's going to be great. Yeah, guys. That's not where I find my joy anymore. That's not where my life is at anymore. Let me tell you about a God who gives me a joy and a satisfaction far beyond any of that. What's wrong with you, man? You've changed, yeah. Let me tell you about this God who changes people. He's amazing. Would have been difficult. He's not a trained evangelist. He's not a seminary graduate. But he didn't experience the living God. And he's going back to tell everybody about it. 